This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, Literary Director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. At last summer's Sun Valley Writers Conference, I had the great joy of sitting down with revered memoirist, short story writer, and novelist Tobias Wolff to talk about his life and work. If I were to say to my 15-year-old son, Garrick, to point out someone who, to me, exemplifies if you were going to become a writer in the world, serious, important writer, how to do that, how to carry yourself, how to nourish your work and the work of others, I would point him to Toby Wolfe. And... If you look at what Toby has managed to do with his life, both the life that came at him when he was young, which we will get into in a bit, and what he managed to do with that life and how he managed to grow those experiences into stories and to navigate himself and his craft, first through short stories, starting in 1981 with a fantastic collection in the Garden of the North American Martyrs, I taught one of those stories in the late 80s at Harvard. And taking that form, extending it, learning how to harness the power, the precision, the velocity of those stories, working with certain themes that seemed, I guess, indelible in his own life, themes of deception, if you will, the fragility of good fortune, the moral quandaries of being alive and working with that form to make the very most of those themes and using language that was never showy but always multi-layered and deeply effective for the story at hand. And then coming to certain periods of his life and deciding, because that's what the stories told him, to write memoir. And he wrote This Boy's Life, came out in 1989, I'm sure you know of it, and he followed that with In Pharaoh's Army some years later, which picks up really the narrative of his time in Vietnam and training as a soldier. And we'll get into all of that, but those memoirs stand as classics. His short story writing, he's won every major award for short fiction there is, the Ray Prize, the Story Prize, and he is now at work closing in on a novel, 
So there's no form that he has bowed away from. He's taught for many years. He's a much beloved teacher, and among his students are George Saunders and Tom Perota and many other great writers. And the way he's carried himself, his generosity, his humility, and his fierce desire to forever get better at what he does. So you need look no further than Toby as what a writer should be. So it's my great honor and privilege to be here with my friend. And um, we're going to just have a conversation really about his life and his work and his thoughts on fiction and other writers because we all stand on the shoulders. And to begin, and at the risk of overstructuring uh, the narrative here, which is something that neither of us would appreciate, but I thought we might begin with your childhood, your past. And you've said that, like most writers, you remember your past in stories, as a series of stories. And you've written some of those indelible stories, both in fiction and in memoir. And you've also said once that you said, memory doesn't work by committee. And I'm just wondering what you meant by that, and as a sort of opening before we head back into the waters. Good question. We come to know ourselves and even define ourselves by the story and stories that we tell about ourselves, that we decide is our story. And that's a lifelong process. And when you think of what happens when you tell a story about yourself, you, we live in this constant current of experience. We can't make all of it mean anything. So we have to find or impose some pattern on it to make sense of it. And so we are all storytellers in that way. Every time a kid comes home from school and starts telling you about his unfair victimization by his teacher, he's telling a story. You also know as his parent that he's leaving a lot out. And, uh, and we do that. I mean, the, the, the very process of making a story means carving out, leaving out all kinds of things, editing our experience. So a story is always a very partial, gives us a partial sense of reality, but it's the only way we can have any sense of reality is to give our experience form. And different people within the story see it in very different ways, of course. Why do they ever? that story, that scene from Shakespeare in Love? Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, it's the, uh, the wench. The actors have gone into uh, a pub during rehearsal. You'll remember all this, I know. But this big guy who's playing the nurse, Juliet's nurse, because there was always guys on the stage in Shakespeare's time, he's sitting down having a flagon beside this woman who's working uh, in the pub. And she says, so you're in a play. Uh, what's it called? Romeo and Juliet. And she says, what's the play about? And he says, well, there's this nurse. And <laughs> we're all, it's we're such all, a great line. We're all Tom. our own protagonists. I mean, it, it was is, just wonderful. It, and you've written memoirs now, and you know very well that you may think it's your memoir, Absolutely. but other people might think it's theirs. So... Let's go back to your childhood, because you certainly packed a lot in. 
and the family's structural dynamic of your childhood had some very interesting wrinkles to it. Mm-hmm. Would you explain what those structural dynamics were for you, where you were living and how you were, you know, with your mom and with your brother Jeffrey and his father and, and where you spent your time? And as you look back, what was the sort of arc of that, of right. those years, just practically speaking? Right. Well, there were four of us. Uh, I have uh, my parents, of course, and I have an older brother, Jeffrey Wolf, also a writer and a wonderful, wonderful writer. Wonderful writer. And our father was absent a lot, and he did different kinds of projects as an aeronautical engineer, very much an autodidact. He was actually involved to some extent in the design of the P-51 Mustang, the plane, they say, that won the war. But he was also... Uh, pretty, uh, how can I put it, uh, unreliable. I, I did hear him described as a genteel con man. Yes, Was, yes. Just, yeah. uh, someone looking at him from the outside would probably think he was a con man, but he always believed his own BS. So that doesn't count really, does it? Uh, <laughs> uh, you, the true con man knows he's conning somebody, right? Right. But when my father, for example, would go into a, uh, a Jaguar dealer and drive an XK120, which he did, off the lot, I know that he really meant to pay for that someday. <laughs> uh, but in the end, all his cars got repossessed. And the one way in which he was, I think, consciously deceptive, though even that became unconscious after a time was concealing his origins, even his real name. And it was strange. He grew up in a very, very cultured Jewish family in Hartford, Connecticut. His father was a doctor, as his father had been a doctor and his father before him. Going back a very long time, one of them had been a doctor on Napoleon's staff. But he was an only child born very late in his parents' life, and they were really unable to keep up with him, and he got way out of hand. They sent him off to boarding school, and this was at a time when, not just in Europe, but in this country too, anti-Semitism was hardly concealed, really, and especially in boarding schools, I think. And so he adopted the manner and genealogy of a patrician, and took on the manner of one. And in a way, that first kind of entering into another role tainted his whole life and his relation to others. So he was uh, mostly absent in my childhood. My mother drove us across the country to, first to Utah, then to Washington State, just the two of us, and ended up marrying a, a man in Washington State. And we lived in the Cascade Mountains in a little tiny village up in the mountains that was a kind of service village for a dam up there for Seattle City Light and traveled 35 miles a day each way to go to high school when I finally started. And so that was, uh, it was a... And Jeffrey, who was seven years older, right? He went off to live with Duke, your father, in another, another life completely. Right. And Jeffrey would publish his memoir, which is wonderful, The Duke of Deception, about life with his and Toby's father in the late 70s, about 10 years before Toby published This Boy's Life, about really life with your mother and your stepfather. So 
This Boy's Life, if you haven't read it, 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 it really is one of the very best memoirs I can think of. And to me, the, you're the protagonist, but it's, it's about your mother, really, above all. Right. And I would love you just to talk a little bit about how you came to write that book as memoir and what your thoughts were about it, which are really thoughts about your mother. Yeah. And, what she, and how you remembered her. Right. Well, I had uh, a lot of adventures with my mother when we, when we were growing up because I grew up with her. She was from an Irish Catholic family and a wanderer. Even to the end, when she was in her 80s, she broached the idea to me of her by herself buying a Winnebago and taking off across the country again. And I discouraged her from this, and I sort of wish I hadn't now. Uh, the very fact that she wanted to do that tells you a lot about her. Once she got on an airplane, not exactly on a whim, but just about on a whim, and flew to North Africa and met a, a guy on the airplane who was a famous architect who was going to take an architectural tour by himself in a jeep through the Atlas Mountains to see how people had fashioned their houses over the millennia, really, up there, and invited her, you know, it wasn't a romance. He just liked her and said, you want to come along? So she gets into a Jeep with this guy that she's met on an airplane and spends two weeks driving through the Atlas Mountains. That was my mother. I had started to write a couple of stories calling those years back, and they kind of fell flat as fiction. And I thought, well, this thing wants to be written as the real experience that I had with her. And so when I finally admitted to myself that I was writing a memoir, which was not an easy thing to admit to myself because you feel very exposed in the writing of a book like that, and I was not uh, a role model. And I had two boys at the time I was writing that. I thought, oh boy, what are they going to think of me if I actually tell the truth about myself. And there's no other reason to write such a book except to do that. But anyway, they turned out to be very understanding in the end. And it had the, uh, in exposing myself as the miscreant boy I often was, it did discourage me then in raising my sons from putting on the judge's robes that we so often do when raising our children and the robes of righteousness. And when I was your age, I, and then fill it in. It was always some good thing follows that phrase, some wonderfulness of your own. So it turned out to be kind of a tonic in our relationship. Well, again, I think reaching a point in one's life where almost without realizing it, the surface may seem very different from the past that has preceded it, so that right. people looking at one's life might see something, and then you start saying, well, no, actually, that's not right. what I came from. That's I mean, right. there's, a, there's a story I know you told. I don't want to make more of it maybe than it was, but a colleague at, when you were teaching at Syracuse came to dinner, someone you didn't know that well, and kind of made a, a few well-intentioned assumptions about your nice house because everything was very domestic and lovely and assuming that you had come from that through the world of private schools and a certain kind yeah. of... And, you know, after he left, you're sort of... You're kind of bothered by it yeah. because, you know, that's not what you'd come from. Right. And then by that time, your mother was, had gone from 
roving the world and being one of the most adventurous women in contemporary letters, I would say, to being, I don't know, the president of some incredible right. Rotary League Club. Of or, yes, League of Women Voters. League of Women Voters. County, Florida. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Secretary of the Garden right. Club. And so you set about not dismantling that, but building right. it again from inside. And yeah. That's right. One it, of was the, a, it, was, you know, it was in a funny way, without a, him meaning to have been provocative, it did provoke in me the desire to say, well, one might easily assume the kinds of things that he did, and, but it would be a nice thing to have a record of how things actually were, right. at least for my children and for nothing else. So, not, you know, the record, of course, a true record is both light and dark, and within this boy's life, as anyone who's read it will know, or seen the movie as well with, with De Niro um, and Leo DiCaprio, uh, there's a, a very dark strain, which is your mother's marriage to Dwight um, mm-hmm. and a very abusive man. And one of the overriding questions in a way that comes from that, I think, is the hatred that ultimately it fills you with towards him. And in, as you've described it, kind of disfigures you. Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested to think about how you carried that weight forward with you after Dwight was gone, mm-hmm. and both as a person and as a writer. What do you do mm-hmm. with that as a writer? Mm-hmm. Man, my mother was married to was uh, a violent man. He was alcoholic and. Uh, once even followed after my mother left him and went to Washington, D.C. to work, followed her out and tried to kill her with a knife on her way home. So this was a pretty bad guy. Actually, I, I rarely think about him anymore. I thought about him a lot. Of, I don't write for therapy. I'd rather really pay a professional. Uh, writing, writing's too hard. Writing, it puts me in therapy. And, but uh, I have to say that probably... Writing the book, having to step out of the experience, see it from outside, form it, shape it, give it language, and that was a tremendously freeing thing for me. So that's not why I did it, but it did have, I think, that effect on me. I don't think about him. I don't carry that at all anymore. He had children who were my step-siblings, and one of my step-siblings called me up And she was a little cross with me about the book. Not that she disputed it, but she said, I just want you to know, she said, that when my dad was dying, he said, I had my daughter read your book to him, and and it really made him unhappy in his last days. And (laughs) And I thought, you know, couldn't you have, like, have had her read him like Black Beauty or, so, or, or something like that. I, I, what's really your, you know, kids say the darndest things. There's just a lot of books out there you could have had, read to him. Um, she may have had her own anger uh, yeah. towards, towards Dwight. Um, so that relationship passed. And I mean, your description of the last time you ever saw Dwight as he's being arrested um, so that was the last time I yeah. saw him as the police came. Yeah. And so part of that, the wild journey of this boy's life as well, and it taps into a, a novel, wonderful novel that Toby wrote some years later called Old School, which I am incredibly partial to. 
is that at the age of 14, much to our surprise, much to everybody's surprise, as it turns out, Toby finds himself with a big scholarship at a prestigious boarding school on Philadelphia's main line called the Hill School, registered as a student under the very impressive name of Tobias Jonathan von Ansel Wolf III. And so I... I'm my father's son. So this is the part where we we start getting into the real (laughs) story-making mode where uh, life starts meeting fiction and the future fiction maker. And I'm wondering, looking back, first, if you wouldn't mind just explaining how the hell that happened, and two, how you see that now in relation to the fiction writer and storyteller you became not to put too direct a line to it. Right. Unless you'd rather not. Well, no. I'll, I, I'll just briefly do right. it. Uh, and things had reached such a point in my life with my stepfather that I really felt I had to get out. And so I managed to get in touch with my brother, who I had not been in touch with for many years, who was then in his last year at Princeton. And said, can you help? Can you give me some advice here? He said, well, how about trying to get you a scholarship to a boarding school? And he had gone to one himself, and it had been a great help to him. And he said, are you doing really well in school? And I lied and said, yes. And he said, well, then let's get on this and see what we can do. So he gave me a list of schools to apply to, and I realized that In fact, I had really been in trouble a lot. I skipped school a lot that the actual Toby Wolf would not get a scholarship to one of these schools. So I had to come up with another Toby Wolf that would. And so a friend of mine, Gary, was working in the office of the high school that I was in, Concrete High School, it was called. And it was, as I said, 35 miles from the village where I lived. So we had this long bus ride every day. And Gary filched me a bunch of concrete high school stationery. And after school, each day for a couple of weeks, I went into the typing lab after school when there was nobody there. And I wrote myself some really glowing letters of recommendation. (laughs) And I also, again, with some help from my friend, who was then my best friend, altered my transcripts. And in that way, I took a scholarship away from some boy who actually deserved it. And I'm not proud of that. But I'm glad that I ended up getting to this school, the Hill School, because it was a tremendous, just a revolution in my life. The education I got there just was extraordinary, and the kind of intellectual ferment that I experienced there, unlike anything that I'd ever known, the encouragement toward a life of thinking critically about things was a, I don't know, was an experience that really gave me a a way forward that I had not seen before. Did you feel, was that the time when the idea of becoming a writer or... or yeah. first began to take hold, and who were the writers that really began right. to uh, oh, seep d- in? Absolutely. It was actually, I had always written. For some reason, I had always been attracted to reading and even trying writing stories myself. Of course, very imitative stories, 
I loved O. Henry and liked to write stories with trick endings, that sort of thing. I remember one of them, in fact. It was a story about a family of Italian acrobats, and the、uh, patriarch is really a nasty guy, and so his wife and kids. The finale is that he gets way up on the trapeze and does a dive into a pool of water down below. And before the show, they drain the tank and paint it blue and take out a big insurance policy. That was the trick ending.、Uh, anyway, <laughs>、uh, that's, that's one of the stories that I, the kind of stories that I wrote. But, but no, I loved writing. And then I spent a summer with my brother before I went off to school. And he was, had been an English major at Princeton and really encouraged me in this a lot and, and actually kind of educated me, prepared me for school that summer. He had, and,、uh, he had me reading Greek plays and Hemingway's stories, and that became especially, he really focused on Hemingway toward the end of the summer when Hemingway died that summer, killed himself that summer. And my brother was just devastated by that and really wanted me to. Learn about Hemingway and took me through his stories. And so it, I had great encouragement from him and then from several of my teachers at, at school. By the way, if you haven't seen the Ken Burns two part Hemingway documentary, you'll see Toby in there talking with incredible wisdom and clarity, I think, about Hemingway's work. So you'd been growing up mostly out in the Pacific Northwest in a more of a working class environment. You have a couple of years at the Hill School, which is total flip flop in a sense. And, and yet, at the same time, that and being with Jeffrey that summer gives you an insight and a platform into a different, very different kind of world and intellectually.、Mm-hmm. And then you end up enlisting in the Army、right. in 1964, where you'll spend four years. Right. Well, in my last year at the school, I was.、Uh, Derelict in studying mathematics, which I failed repeatedly and lost my scholarship, so I had to leave. And worked on a, a ship for a while, a Coast and Geodetic Survey ship, and then I joined the Army. Seemed a very natural thing for me to do because all the men that I had grown up with had served, and, and it was just seemed to me to be something you did and like a base you touched in life. I went in and, in an odd way, found it congenial, the order of it.、I、never had to, you know, talk about going into the army to become a man. No, you go into the army to stay a boy. You never have to make a decision about what you're going to wear. You never have to look for a place to live. You never have to worry about cooking your own meals. No, it's a prolonged adolescence, really. And in that way, maybe it was congenial with the order. And I liked the physical challenge of it. And I had great friends. You went into the Green Berets. And so Vietnam is. It was is, in my future. Yeah.、Uh, it wasn't in. When I went into the, the Army in 1964, Vietnam was,、uh, was not an inevitability. There were, we had troops there. We had not lost very many of them, and it wasn't a foregone conclusion that this was going to become the serious thing that it did. I mean, it was serious, but an all consuming thing for the country. But of course, it did. And, you know, eventually I realized that I had kind of got myself in a funnel that was leading to one place, and it did,、uh, 
Yeah, I went to jump school, became a paratrooper, and then I was at Fort Bragg in the Special Forces, and then they sent me to language school to learn Vietnamese for a year. And then after all that training and learning Vietnamese, I knew they weren't going to send me to Germany. So uh, that's what I, that funnel I'm talking about. So I, yeah, I, I did a tour my last year in the Army there. So then when you decide to start writing about that period in your life, and this brings the question too of why fiction for some stories and, and nonfiction for others. Right. And how did you come to decide to write a memoir about that experience? And then how do you find a tone commensurate with the seriousness of the experience you knew? Right. That's a good question. I did write a couple of short stories set in Vietnam, also a uh, prematurely a very bad novel, which I don't even list among my publications. I detest it so much. When I was still a student, I wrote that. And that you know, most first novels don't get published, and this shouldn't have either, but it did. But I was trying to process it, definitely. And I wrote a couple of, I thought, pretty good short stories. But I knew that I wasn't really capturing the experience in it. But it took me a long time. I got back in 68, and I finished my memoir of service in Vietnam in 1994. So that's, that's a long time, 26 years between the time I got back and the time that memoir came out. And it did take me that long to kind of step back from it and let things sort out and also um, to be able to tell it truthfully. Mm -hmm. I was close enough at different times and, you know, of course, I consulted the letters that I had written home while I was over there. And they were unreliable because I was always affecting a good cheer. Pose. And, and yeah. yeah, I'd struck a pose in those letters so that people wouldn't worry about me and that sort of thing. And it was, uh, yeah. The first chapter of, I think it's called Thanksgiving Special, or right. of in, in Pharaoh's Army, punctures that pose entirely from the beginning. It lets you know that that story, I mean, was that your entree into that as a memoir? I mean, was that in fact when you knew that you could tell this straight? There was a memory I had that I wanted to write pretty much as it happened. And then I did write it as it happened. And oh, just briefly, uh, so we were out in the sticks. And because I spoke Vietnamese, I was with a Vietnamese unit and a couple of other American so-called advisors. And one of them had gotten one of these little tiny TV sets that we would watch sometimes, the Armed Forces Network would show things. And we all liked Bonanza. And Thanksgiving of 67, Bonanza was going to have this Thanksgiving special. And we decided it really didn't do Bonanza justice to watch it on this thing. So there was an American base some distance farther down the road. And I will say, not a very safe road. But we decided to go down there and snag ourselves because the Americans had so much stuff. And so, uh, long story short, one of the sergeants that I was serving with, and I, I was by then a first lieutenant, drove down this road, braving mines and ambushes in order to snag ourselves a decent television. And we stole one, a big one, stashed it in the back and managed to make it out of the American post, back, got home in time to watch 
bonanza on Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, and that was the kind of crazy stuff that went on there. I mean, I, I think of it now, I think, what was I thinking, you know? But it was an upside down world, it really was. Thank you. Well, I can think of no better guide to that upside down world, or for that matter, to our own upside down world at the present moment than Tobias Wolf. What a great pleasure it was to speak with him at last year's conference. I'm so glad we've been able to share some of it with you. Thanks so much for listening. I'm John Bernard Schwartz, and this is Beyond the Page. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shelliday.